to begin our time together this evening, what I want to do for us is to help our understanding of the size of David's throne. And no, I'm not talking about if we were to compare David's throne to uh, the big chair that Santa's sitting on at the mall. I'm not talking about the physical chair that David reigned from, but I'm talking about the size in terms of the importance of King David's throne and the one who would come from his line. 2 Samuel 7.13, God told David that I shall build a house for my name and establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then in verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7, he said, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Psalm 2 was a psalm penned by David himself, and he writes about this descendant of his who would be God's installed king, Psalm 2, verse 6, who would be God's son, verse 7, who would own all the nations and the earth as his inheritance, verse 8. And then he closes Psalm 2, David writing, and he says this, Worship the Lord, that is Yahweh, with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. In other words, kiss the Son so that he not become angry and you perish in his way. It's really difficult to overemphasize the importance of David's throne and the expectations of the one who would sit on it and reign forever. The first century Jew would have been on the lookout for this Messiah, this king figure, this son of David, who would be the one who once he was on the throne, he would rule forever. That explains why during the triumphal entry, as Jesus enters in to Jerusalem riding on a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, it says the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from trees and spreading them in the road. And the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed all were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. However, everyone didn't follow this trend. In fact, in the same passage that records the triumphal entry, just a few verses later, it says in verse 15 of Matthew 21, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, Jesus that is, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. They became indignant. And friends, this is the background. This is the setting that we have set before us as we enter into Matthew chapter 22 for our consideration this evening. So if you've got a Bible or a phone, go to Matthew chapter 22. And just to get us rolling here, last time I taught, we were in Matthew 22, verses 15 down to about 21 or 22. And if you remember the context here, Jesus is really being faced with a series of three questions with the intent of trapping him. In verse 17, they ask him the question about the poll tax and Caesar. We saw that two weeks ago. In verse 28, they ask him about the resurrection. And if a man has many wives, who will be his wife in the resurrection? Another trap. And then again, in verse 36, they ask him about the greatest commandment of the law. So three questions, three traps. Jesus brilliantly answers all three of them. And now it's his turn to go on to the offense. So as we get to our text in verse 41, we begin and we see it says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together. 
And I just want to pause there for a moment of consideration. In verse 41, and if you bring your eyes back up to 34, it again says, the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees and they gathered themselves together. And I just kind of paused here for a little bit of meditation. Why were they gathering together? Well, the text doesn't say for certain. Potentially, they were gathering together for moral support. Maybe they were gathering together for the exchanging of ideas. Maybe, uh, like elk, they were gathered together because they felt threatened by an enemy. For those of you hunters out there, if you've ever hunted elk, they just herd right up together when the hunters are around or when wolves are around. Maybe that's like the Pharisees. I don't know why. But in any case, they're gathered together. They're on their heels. Jesus is now going to come at them with the truth and bring it right into their laps. And so, being gathered together, Jesus says this in verse 41, or the text says, the Pharisees were gathered together and Jesus asked them a question, verse 42, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Whose son is he? Is the title of the message. And that was the question that Jesus asked to the Pharisees. Now, Within this question, there is an assumption. There is an assumption that the Pharisees knew something about the Christ. And in fact, if you were to study this out, you would see the Pharisees were the religious elite of the day. They had large portions, if not the entire Old Testament memorized, and they knew what the Bible said very well. And so on the basis of that, I just want to show you a few things that they would have known. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God is cursing uh, different characters in this role after the sin. He's cursing man and woman in the ground. And he turns to Satan. And to Satan, he says this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he, that is her seed, shall bruise you, Satan, on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. In other words, as part of the curse, God said that Satan would deliver a blow to this Messiah figure that would be on the heel. In other words, it would be an injury. It would be a a blow that he would feel. And having the entire canon of scripture, we know that blow was on the cross. It seemed as though he was defeated for a moment. He died and was in the grave for three days. However, what does this passage tell us about the Messiah? It says, her seed, one, one man who will come from Eve, will deliver a blow to your head. In other words, he will deliver a defeating blow, a crushing blow that would destroy him. And friends, we know that was accomplished at the cross. It is not yet fulfilled. It was inaugurated. It will be fulfilled when he is finally cast into the lake of fire, and it will be fulfilled on the basis of what Jesus accomplished at the cross. Jesus will crush and has crushed the head of Satan. This was all told in the third chapter of the Bible, which all the Pharisees would have known. Moving on, Genesis chapter 49. Jacob prophesies about his 12 sons, prophecies that were actually uh, very true and came true. And in it, in verse 10 of chapter 49, he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. From this passage, we see one would come from the tribe of Judah who would reign forever without end, and the people would obey and submit to him perfectly. We know that Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. 
He fulfilled this perfectly. Psalm 2, I mentioned this earlier. David writing of the Messiah. We see that Messiah is established as the Son of God, as equal with God, as worthy of worship or homage, and as the one who would carry out the judgment of God. Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 52 portray the Messiah as the restorer and as the suffering servant. And then getting real specific, Micah 5.2 says this, says, as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. And his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity past. Friends, this is just a tiny sampling of our Old Testament theology of the Messiah. There was so much revelation about what this Messiah would be like to where they would have had a very good idea of who he would be, what he would do, what he would be like. The only thing they wouldn't know, according to Peter, is the exact person and the exact time. Besides that, there was a lot of revelation regarding the Christ. And so that is the background in Jesus' question. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Now, I want to give a little bit more background, though, of what they would have known, and I want to hone in on this idea of David. In 2 Samuel 8, 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 17, I read this already, we see that God promises that one of David's descendants would reign forever. He would be king for everlasting. It's again reiterated in 1 Chronicles 17. And in Psalm 89, God says this, He says, once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful. In other words, God is saying, upon my own integrity and my own holiness, I will fulfill my promise that I made to David. Catch this one, Ezekiel 34, just an incredible passage. Uh, the condemnation of the shepherds of the day. They were selfish. They weren't good shepherds. So God says this. He says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. He shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. And here's the interesting thing about this passage. David had been dead for 400 years. Okay, so as common in this day, it refers to my servant David in reference to his descendant who would be like him and from him and come in his likeness, but it refers to his greater descendant, this promised one who would be the Messiah. Three chapters later, again in Ezekiel 37, my servant David will be king over them. They will all have one shepherd and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. So this is what we know about the Messiah. He would come from David. And there's much more revealed about this. But here's the thing. Many in the first century were expecting a conquering Messiah. As we know, Israel was captive to Rome's subjugation and they expected a Messiah who would deliver them on the spot from the hand of Rome and set up the earthly kingdom right then and there. And part of this, this was fascinating. I did some extra biblical studies. Uh, Psalm of Solomon, not Song of Solomon, but Psalm of Solomon 17. It's an apocryphal writing, but nonetheless interesting. It speaks of a Messiah who would shatter unrighteous rulers and who would purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her down to destruction. This was a document the Pharisees used and had access to. 
And so you can kind of start to see their expectation of wanting Rome out. They had a lot of these things that they had pieced together uh, to keep in mind a conquering Messiah. And we saw in Psalm 2, there are biblical writings about this too, uh, that he would rule with a rod of iron, right? And so they expected Messiah to come, crank down that rod of iron, and to eliminate any opposition to the Israel nation. However, friends, here's where they went wrong. Here's where they went wrong. They forgot about the suffering servant. They forgot about Isaiah 53. They forgot about the fact that Messiah would come as the Son of God to die for the sins of many. And here's really what they did. They confused or they missed the fact that there was a first coming and a second coming. His first coming, he came as the suffering servant, as the lamb to be slain. His second coming, he will come as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And that's where they went wrong. They confused the two of them, and therefore, they missed the Christ altogether. Now, returning to the text, Matthew 22, Jesus says, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they say to him in verse 42, the son of David. Now this was interesting. I looked into this. Uh, Their answer is literally one word. There's an article and there's one word. They basically just say David's. They don't say, oh yeah, we know he's going to be David's son because of this. All they say is David's, one word. And I'm just kind of speculating here, but I wonder if they don't know Jesus is kind of up to something by this point. They've been watching this guy for three years. They've already been in the bouts with him through chapter 22 and, and previously. And, and they're maybe thinking, hmm, where's he going to go with this? So they gave a very brief and short answer and they just say, he's David's son. And Jesus takes it from there. That was plenty of ammunition for Jesus to put the truth right back in their lap. Now, just to confirm this, they actually did believe Messiah would be David's son. They taught this themselves. In Mark 12, in the parallel passage, we see the Pharisees were teaching that Messiah would be the son of David. And yet, (laughs) as we find out, let me ask this question. Was this a factual question that Jesus is asking? In other words, does Jesus, number one, not know the answer to this question? Or number two, does he not know what answer they're going to give to this question? Oh no, he knows. And as we find out, this is not really a factual question. This is more of a funneling question. Jesus is going to bring them funneling down right to the face of the truth. Right standing, literally face to face with the truth. I mean, the truth in flesh, in himself, and they're going to have to blatantly reject the truth by the end of this conversation. This is how Jesus works, right? He did the same thing with Caesar's coin, and now he's doing it with just brilliance, asking a question that they will answer, and then he's going to use that answer to present to them their own logical fallacies, their own misrepresentation and total missing of the truth. So, as we might expect, the Pharisees said David. And this answer, believe it or not, was true, right? It was true. We know Jesus was from the line of David. However, it was only a partial truth. Here's the irony of it. It was a partial truth in that on the basis of all the Old Testament passages, we know Messiah would have to be a son of David. However, we also know that he could not merely be a man. For example, how would David bow down to his own son? 
David wouldn't bow down to his own son. No one bowed down to their own son. The father was the ruler of the house in this day. The father led the family. Furthermore, it could easily be argued that David was the most righteous king in Israel's history. David bowed down to no one but God. And yet, as we're going to see, David bows down to this Messiah figure. They would have and should have known that God himself would come down from heaven and dwell among them, that God's own suffering servant would come to render the sins of the people forgiven and that he would rule with a rod of iron. They should have known this would not merely be a man. They should have known Messiah could not merely be a man if his throne and his reign would last forever. In fact, we're going to get to this in a moment, but I just got to give a sneak peek. Isaiah 7, 14, the prophecy that there would, this would be a sign to the people. Behold, a virgin will conceive and she shall give birth to a son and he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Guys, the Pharisees missed it. They blew it big time. And this segues wonderfully into verse 43. Look at what he says. He said to them, Jesus speaking, he says, in other words, in light of the fact that you just said that the Christ will be the son of David, he says, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? How is he his son if he calls him Lord? And again, just to reiterate this, no father would bow down to his son. The significance of this then, we just got to wonder and and start to ask, why in the world is David calling him Lord? Let me just make this scenario clear for us one more time. The Lord, all caps, Yahweh, and this is David speaking, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So the question that Jesus is asking is if this is David's son, then why is, him, why is he calling him my Lord? Who in the world would David call his Lord, especially one of his far descendants? And at this point, it seems that David has a superior. From his line, yes, but Jesus is quoting this to show him that one of David's descendants would be far greater than David himself. He would not only be David's son. The next clause of this quote makes it clear. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Friends, to sit at the right hand of someone enthroned represented equality. It represented equal status, equal authority, equal majesty. And who's the one enthroned in this passage? It's God the Father. We're talking about Yahweh, the God of the entire Old Testament, the God of the universe. And he says to, G- to David's Lord, whoever this figure is, sit at my right hand. Right here, position of equality, authority, position of ruling. Further, he says sit. Right? Did you notice that? He says, sit at my right hand. He doesn't say stand. What does sitting signify? Well, for one, it signifies complete sovereignty. He's not pacing back and forth wondering, oh, what am I going to do about this presidential election? And what am I going to do? Right? He's not up in arms about any happenings with any nation, any current event, any world disaster. He is in complete sovereignty, sitting down. Further, it indicates he's not going anywhere. He's not just passing by. Jesus has sat down at the right hand of the Father with equal authority, equal power, equal equal position, complete sovereignty, and 
forever. He is sat down and reigns forever. And the last clause of this says, until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So not only is he equal power and position and authority with God and all sovereignty along with God and eternal reigning with God, but also he reigns without any successful opposition. No enemy will prevail against him. Doesn't matter how big. Doesn't matter if every nation on this planet assembles together in one army and goes against the Lord Jesus. Doesn't matter. Not even a chance. His rule faces no successful opposition. And friends, this is the passage that Jesus is bringing on a platter and putting before the Pharisees and basically saying, well, what are you going to do with this then? If the Christ is the son of David, explain this to me. You see, this passage, as I've already made clear, is talking about Jesus. Psalm 110 is a prophetic passage, as is Psalm 2, about Jesus Christ the Messiah. And now that he was there in the flesh, here's the tragic reality. They totally missed him. They missed their Messiah. That's why Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem. He says, I wanted to gather you together like a mother hen does her chicks, but you were unwilling. They missed him. Now, despite missing the point and having a lack of repentance, the result in verse 46 says this, No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Jesus had stopped them in their tracks. Jesus had stopped them in their tracks. No one could respond to this question, nor muster any courage to ask him another question. And really, what's fascinating about this conversation is that in light of their answer to Jesus' first question, whose son is he? And they say, David's. Now that he had presented the truth so blatantly stark to what they had said, they could not give an answer. They logically, reasonably could not give an answer. They had put themselves in their own contradictory corner. The scripture now was absolutely clear that the Messiah would be a divine figure, causing even David, King David, to bow down to his lordship, and the Pharisees refused to acknowledge this truth. The blatancy of their sin now, right in front of them, the truth right in front of them, the blatancy of their sin now was abundantly clear to all. There was no excuse for lack of knowledge. Now their rebellion was a strong-willed and direct, directly opposing rebellion to the Lordship of Christ and what they knew to be true and right. They chose, here's the point, they chose not to believe the word of God. They chose not to believe. They knew what it said and they knew what it meant. They did not believe it, despite being religious leaders. And friends, this question that Jesus asks, this fascinating question, whose son is he? It goes unanswered on this page of scripture, but it would have been abundantly obvious to everyone there. Everyone would have known the right answer, and from the rest of scripture, we know the right answer. Jesus was claiming to be the prophesied Christ. He was claiming to be the long-awaited Messiah to save all of humanity from their sins. He was the long-awaited son of David and at the same time, the son of God. And they missed him. They missed him. 
Now, that was just a quick run through of this passage, but before we end tonight, I want to do one more thing, and this is going to be fascinating. To finish this semester and send us into Christmas break, I want to consider one other unique consideration of Jesus' lineage as the Messiah. And I want you to track with me because my hope and desire is that this will bring about greater fascination and adoration for the holiday that we're about to enter into, celebrating the miraculous birth of Christ. Now, we've already seen several passages in the Old Testament regarding God's promised Messiah, uh, the King, the Son. But one passage we did not consider is Jeremiah chapter 22. If you've got a Bible and want to turn there. In Jeremiah 22, a curveball is thrown into this whole plan that leaves you kind of scratching your head for a moment. One of the major prophets after Isaiah. In Jeremiah 22... I'll begin in verse 24 for some context. It says, As I live, declares the Lord, even though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off, and I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life, yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. And I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. Just a side footnote here, uh, researching this, this was fulfilled to the letter. Second Kings chapter 24, I believe, the very end of it. Um, Jeconiah, or Coniah here, same person, he is exiled. After this prophecy, he becomes king. He's king, you want to know for how long? Three months. Three months, and the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar come in, exile him out, Second Kings actually includes the detail with his mother. Him and his mother exiled out. They go to Babylonian and he's killed there. He's killed in the Babylonian Empire by Nebuchadnezzar. And you want to know something interesting? Oh, I got to wait. After verse 30, I'll tell you something else interesting. Let's keep going. Verse 27. But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, shattered jar, or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they had not known? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. And here we go. Tune in. Verse 30. Thus says the Lord, write this down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days. For no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Again, no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David. Whoa, 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 whoa. Time out. What about the scepter shall never depart from Judah? Now this says he won't rule again in Judah. What about the promised Messiah of David? This says no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David. This is the kingly line. Coniah or Jeconiah was the son of Jehoiakim who going back and back and back and back and back was the son of Solomon who was the son of David. This is the kingly line. Furthermore, you want to know who was king in, in uh, Israel after Jeconiah? After this curse is set forth in Jeremiah 22? You want to know who was king in Israel? No one. Well, technically there was a king. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar set up a king from Babylon, changed his name, said, why don't you rule these people while we're deporting them out to keep order? He was the last Israel king though, period. He was the last one. He was in the tribe of Judah. The north got exiled off earlier. The south lasted a couple hundred more years and he was the last Hebrew king. 
coming off of this curse. So here's the question. Did God make a mistake? Did God make a promise to David that one of his descendants would reign forever and then he made a promise and a curse to Jeconiah that none of your descendants shall rule again? How in the world is God going to solve this problem? Turn to Matthew chapter 1. This is really where things get left off in the Old Testament. This is very, very late what we just read in the history of the writing of the Old Testament. And the New Testament, with a 400-year gap, begins in Matthew 1, verse 1, with this sentence. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Interesting. So the New Testament, after all these years, begins with a genealogy. And in verse 11, I want to draw your attention there, it says, Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So in the midst of Jesus' genealogy, we see who is in Jesus' genealogy. Jeconiah or Coniah, same guy, the guy that we just read about in Jeremiah 22. You keep reading down in verse 16, you get Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who's called the Messiah. So this is his genealogy through his stepfather, Joseph. And what we see is that Joseph is in the bloodline of David, and yet he's also in the bloodline of cursed Jeconiah. Well, here's another interesting tidbit. Luke also records a genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, but if you trace the names from Jesus up to David, they're all different. And in fact, even David's son is different in the two. And the reason for this is is that Luke chapter 3 records Jesus' genealogy through his mother, Mary. So again, Matthew is Joseph's genealogy, Luke is Mary's genealogy, and here's the incredible thing, both Jesus' parents had Davidic blood, they were ancestors of David, the king, the man after God's own heart, and this is really why we begin to see the significance of why this opens up with a genealogy. Jesus was proclaiming to be the Christ, and Matthew writing years later is showing he had the right to proclaim that. You guys, listen. The genealogical records in this day would have been accessible to anyone, very accessible. In the temple, you go there, you pull up the records, boom, you can see someone's entire ancestry. The Pharisees undoubtedly took trips, probably more than one trip, to try to disprove Jesus' claim to being the Christ, and yet nothing turned up. Why? Because it was totally legitimate. He had Davidic royal blood on both sides, mom and dad. But there's one more thing to be uncovered here. We have not solved this problem yet. In Joseph's genealogy, which is in Matthew, we see Joseph is in the royal line of David, but he is also in the line of Jeconiah. He's in the line of the kings. Joseph is, right? So he's in the line of David, but also the cursed line of Jeconiah. His great-great-great-great-great-grandpa was Solomon. Mary is in the Davidic line, but she is through Nathan, Nathan and Solomon are brothers. They're both David's sons, one of like 19 or 20, okay? Friends, this is where the amazement comes in. I want you to track for a moment. God made promises to David and his line to have a a king from the Davidic line on the throne forever. Yet, he curses the line of Jeconiah. And I want to ask this question. Whose blood did Jesus have? Did he have Joseph's blood? 
Absolutely not. He only had Mary's blood. But legally, who was Joseph's, or sorry, who was Jesus' earthly father? Without any doubt, legally, culturally, uh, in the eyes of everyone there, again, legally, he was Joseph's son. Joseph was his father. In fact, in John 6.42, the people say, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? And so, here's the key. While Jesus did not inherit a single drop of Joseph's cursed blood, he did inherit any legal right that would have been awarded to the offspring of Joseph. Again, he did not inherit his blood, but he inherited every legal right of a son of Joseph. And what is the significant legal right that belonged to the line of the ancestry of Joseph? Mm. Kingship. Kingship belonged to Joseph. And so Jesus inherited, this is just incredible, he inherited the same privileges and rights to the throne that any biological son of Joseph would have had, and yet at the same time, he skipped out on the cursed bloodline. Is that not incredible? Well, what about this? I thought that the Messiah had to be a descendant, a seed of David. He had to have David's blood. So how are you going to work that one out, God? To some, maybe some skeptic might say. Oh, well, what do you know? Jesus' mom, Mary, is also of Davidic blood through Nathan. And is Nathan a very significant player? Not really. He doesn't do a whole lot. You want to know what's significant about him? He's not Solomon, and he's not Jeconiah. Nathan was a son of David who was not cursed. So Mary has a pure Davidic bloodline, which she shared with Jesus, and yet Joseph has the right to the throne, which would be given to any son of his. Friends, here's the answer to this cosmic problem. Are you ready? It's the virgin birth. It's the virgin birth. God's wisdom and his plan of the virgin birth all along. Let me read to you again, Isaiah 7, 14. It says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin, this is 800 years before Jesus is born. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel, and in commenting on this, Matthew chapter 1 says that Emmanuel means God with us. <sighs> Guys, this is where I want to leave us this evening. The reason that the Pharisees couldn't or wouldn't receive Jesus is because they would not believe the word of God by faith. They knew it, but they wouldn't truly believe it. Jesus was the son of David. Yes, they were right. But he was far greater and more significant than David, and David himself even understood that. David worshipped Jesus in pre-incarnate form before he ever even came. David recognized Messiah, and he worshipped him. And I just want to point out this about the virgin birth. This is the only way it could have worked. This is the only way a couple of things could have worked. Number one, that God could have fulfilled his promises to Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, you know, the whole shebang there, but also with David, and yet also follow through with this curse on Jeconiah's line. The virgin birth is the only way that solves it. But here is maybe even more significant of the virgin birth. The virgin birth is the only way that God could successfully redeem mankind to himself for eternity. You see, friends, the Savior, the Messiah, had to be of divine descent. He had to be God. His blood had to be more valuable than mine or yours, Right? He had to be of infinite value and worth in order to pay for the sins of the world. 
He had to be fully God, born of the Spirit, come down from heaven. He had to be God himself in flesh. It had to be that way. But he also had to have our same blood. He had to be a man. He had to be fully man. You can't sacrifice a chicken and save a bunch of men, right? If you want to save a bunch of chickens, you can't sacrifice an ant. It just makes sense. He had to be a man to save us from our sins. And he had to be fully man. He had to be limited by the weakness of the flesh, constrained to the confines of humanity, living a perfect life by the normal spiritual disciplines, tried and tested and yet without blemish so that his sacrifice could apply to our accounts. Jesus' question in Matthew 22 points to the virgin birth, friends. Messiah was David's son and Messiah was God's son. Does this not just cause you to marvel? Does this when I say amen and jump up and shout? Guys, marvel at the wisdom of God, at the love of God, at the plan of God. A virgin birth of the Son of God who was fully God and fully man who would live a perfect life to pay for the sins of the world. And this is where I want to leave us is that this is why we celebrate Christmas. Yes, I understand it has been highly culturalized. It is very influenced by pagan practices. Okay, I know we're all going to go home. We're going to eat sugar cookies. We're going to eat fudge. We're going to sit around the Christmas tree. We're going to exchange gifts. Then we're going to go return gifts and do some extra shopping on top. I know how it goes. Okay, this, yeah, you're going to watch all the Christmas movies. Great. Okay, enjoy that. Don't worship those things, but enjoy it. But listen, remember what we're really celebrating. We are celebrating this miraculous virgin birth of the Messiah, the long-awaited Christ, the Son of God in flesh, born of a virgin who died for the sins of the world. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible thing. Man, fully God, fully man. Lord Jesus, you reign on high. God, thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your revelation to us in the word of God. Thank you for a perfect life lived for our sake that we can not only learn from and model and grow from, but that we can benefit salvation from by trusting by faith in your perfect life, slain on the cross, paying for our sin, taking the wrath of God. Lord, if some don't know you here, we pray for them. We pray, God, that they would embrace this truth. It is undeniable, Lord. Even just some of the scriptures we looked at in the Old Testament that prophesied this and were fulfilled to a T, God, it points to the truthfulness of you, your word, Jesus, the whole thing. God, it's all true. Lord, would you save them? Save them, Lord. I pray, Lord, for our students, for everyone here, as we go back home to our families, some of which are believers, some of which are unbelievers, Lord, to friends, to hometowns. God, use this group to minister. Use this group to encourage believers mightily. Use this group to share the gospel with those who don't know you. God, would this be really a light to other uh, towns and even states and communities, God? We want to be an impact for Christ over this Christmas time. Thank you, Lord, for this virgin birth and the miraculous nature of it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.